thank you so much, Greg, for joining me today. Super excited to talk about your journey, my man, and, and Generation Conscious and, and what you're building. Uh, before we get into what the company and the brand mission and sort of vision is, talk a little bit about your journey. So I'm yeah. a first generation uh, Trinidadian Chinese. I grew up in Jamaica, Queens in the late 80s and early 90s. And at the time, there was nine waste transfer facilities. And I ended up getting mm. asthma because, of it. and that's because, you know, like the rest of the country, most of the waste in New York City went through the South Bronx and Jamaica, Queens, a low income black and brown community. 70% of all toxic waste facilities in America are built within one mile of low income white, black and brown communities. And it wasn't until I got a little bit older that I got really activated around environmental justice. And really that cataclysmic moment for me was when I was reading the last IPCC report and then extrapolates data based on uh, different temperature increases and how it's going to affect rising sea levels and more specifically coastal communities. You know, as temperatures get closer, like 1.9, 2.1 degrees, many folks in uh, Trinidad and Tobago, where my 15 cousins and six aunts and uncles live, are going to ultimately, you know, be challenged and potentially displaced by rising sea levels. And honestly, that's, that's frankly what a lot of people today are dealing with in Bangladesh, Lagos in Nigeria, uh, Indonesia. And so this isn't like an in the future thing. This is an right. in the now thing. Just because we in the West don't specifically see it because we have so much resources to build around it like we are in Miami doesn't mean that it's not a real issue. And with that, I started to really re I should say, investigate, you know, my relationship to waste. And what I found was that 75% of everything that we throw away in the States is fast moving consumer goods. You know, half of that is food and beverage, your coffee cups, you know, your, your bottles of water, any beverage that you're really buying that you're just going to dispose of. And the other yeah. half of that, those household goods, personal care, laundry sector, right? Yep. And, you know, and, and in many other parts of the world, these products are not liquid products. You know, they're coming in bar form, they're coming in powder form, they're coming in sheet form. For us in the States, we're so used to having a very luxurious liquid gel product that requires, you know, packaging, let alone plastic packaging, it's really exacerbating this issue because 99% of all plastic packaging is made from fossil fuels. And mm. it also increases the amount of emissions to ship it when you're shipping liquid, when in reality, 70 to 90% of those products are just water, you know, whether it's coffee, water, or even think about laundry detergent, body wash, it's yep. really just water. We started having these intergenerational conversations with my mom and her friends. And what we found was that in India 60 years ago, when poor farmers were moving to the cities for jobs in the 60s, there was no access to soap. And so virus started spreading as urbanization increased. Mm -hmm. And what they did to stop that was they coated surfactants, which are the active ingredients that have antimicrobial, antibacterial properties, onto cellulose which is just a naturally occurring biological material called wood pulp. And what they would do then is then they would perforate them and cut them like little post-it notes. So you'd have like little mini post-it notes and you could have about three inches of mini post-it notes that had the same amount of washes as bar soap, but took about 75% less volume and then had the same amount of washes as say like a 12 ounce liquid plastic bottle of, of hand soap. And without all that packaging, it's 97% less water when you're moving to liquidless sheet products. Hmm. And so they were, even to this day in India, people are still carrying around soap strips. And when we actually bring these sheet products to schools, a lot of the students from, you know, who, who have Indian origin or ethnicity, a lot of their families, you know, have introduced them to sheet products at a very early age when they went back and actually visited. And then we learned hmm. like in, in Iran, during the revolution in the 80s, they were having the same issue because there was no access to soap in the schools. And so what they did was that they printed surfactants on cellulose, but instead of printing them like little post-it notes, they printed them like little 
booklets. And so students would carry around their textbooks, their notebooks, but also booklets of soap. And they did that on purpose so that students wouldn't forget their soap. Yeah. And then you just rip off a little sheet, go to the back of the, you know, the school and wash your hands. And that was like a revelation to me. It's like, you know, we create 7.5 times more waste per capita here in the States than people in India. You know, and so often we're like, oh my gosh, like, Yes, China's now the biggest carbon emitter, but they have a much more comprehensive climate action plan to decarbonize than we do. You know, a lot of their factories are already operating off hydroelectric power. You know, this is just something that we just don't have here yet. We don't have that infrastructure. And so trying to not reinvent the wheel and borrow some of these concepts that have already been invented and then just put them through a central repository to, you know, create a fully closed loop zero waste system for fast moving consumer goods was, I was like, wow. I think we could do this. And then leveraging some of my past experiences around running global marketing campaigns for like New Balance and Samsung and trying to apply this lens of like cool and youth culture to a sustainability mm -hmm. movement that is typically designed, marketed, and priced for upper middle class people who really just aren't the ones who are pushing culture, not whatsoever. And trying to make this a, a cultural moment to create that paradigm shift in the way that we think and dispose of everyday products. And so we launched these pilots at five schools a year ago to test these products before we build built the machine um, mm -hmm. at UPenn, Amherst, Williams, Bowdoin, and Cole, and Wesleyan. And more than 84% of the students of the 4,000 who got our products said that they would actually pay to refill our laundry detergent sheets. And there were a couple other just sort of like insights from that pilot that really informed building that machine. But then we launched it last fall um, and more than 20% of the students at Wesleyan and Connecticut College actually used the, sh the machine more than twice. And a third of the students who used it were not low income and paid out of their own pocket to use it. And then, you know, now today we've expanded, we've deployed at five schools and we've signed on another 14 and we expect to hopefully be at 20 schools starting in September. The idea is that there is a, a machine on campus where you can go get laundry sheets, like laundry detergent, soap, like give me an idea of, of the customer journey, right? When it's on some their campus, how, how can students use it? Totally. Right now, the refill stations are placed either in the student center or in the laundry rooms. If a low-income student who's on financial aid wants access, the school's actually paying up front for them to access it for free. And so before they even come on campus, we provide them with a unique identification number that's connected to their account. They put that ID into the LED screen and it dispenses one of their 10 or five refills that they've been given by the school. Now, if you're not on financial aid, you can pay 10 or $20 on our website via subscription model that gives you five refills of 10 sheets or 10 refills of 10 sheets. And then in your order confirmation email, you get a unique identification number that you then put into the tablet or the LED screen. And then it dispenses one of your five or 10 refills and deducts it from your account. Super simple. That's how it works. So the idea of going to schools first, was that because of the culture thing and they tend to move culture was that the only reason going to sort of schools first? So there's a, there's a number of different reasons. One, you know, I started a worker cooperative art collective for black and brown artists who were between the ages of 19 and 25 without college degrees. I then was the leading campaign manager for Move On during the 2016 election, getting over 400 students from Ohio State to get out the vote. And I had started a nonprofit back in 2012 that was really aimed at helping young people in middle school and high school get uh, the tangible skill sets needed to actually get into like the best schools possible, which meant like actually getting that real tangible work experience. Um, and so my work has always been around empowering young people specifically mm -hmm. who come from marginalized communities to take greater agency over their work and their life by providing them with these skill sets to do that. And so a lot of this is about providing equity back to these communities and not just in providing them with these sheets for free, but we also roll out a workforce development program where we pay first-gen low-income and DACA students who disproportionately come from environmental justice communities 
$20 an hour to actually maintain and service these refill station. Now that's great, my personal great journey. Yeah, yeah. From a macroeconomic perspective, when we think about all the different industries across the US that are fastly trying to move towards decarbonization and actually have the most aggressive you know, carbon neutrality goals, it's really educational institutions. So mm-hmm. when we had first started in 2019, there was already 550 universities in the US that had committed to carbon neutrality by 2030 or 2040. And- Meaning on their campus? Yeah. Meaning as a campus? As a campus. And then on top of that, so that's from the top down, from the administrators, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Now from a bottom-up approach, you had about 250, 300 campuses, and that's growing. I think today it's about 400, where there are students leading campaigns to ban single-use plastic bottles, right? Mm -hmm. But at the same time, when you look at the user journey of that student, they're leading those campaigns, but when you go to their campus store, which is the most convenient place for them to buy their products, is all petroleum-based packaging with a high chemical count that usually are really harsh chemicals, parabens, additives, coloring, antifreeze that are in these detergents, body wash, that are really just not good for them, right? And we're slowly starting to see some schools, student stores starting to adopt more sustainable products, but no one is really radically thinking about, well, why not just provide a more comprehensive infrastructure that allows for a real visioning of what the future can hold around fast moving consumer goods. And when we match that up with equity, we match that up with infrastructure, and we bring that to the students, you know, they feel really empowered that, you know, this is a coalition that they can bring onto their campus and that they can actually make this change happen. You spoke about the, the sort of initial trial period with some students. What was, I guess, some of the questions on that and sort of what are, what are I guess, the students specifically at that first sort of beta test? What was their awareness for climate? I mean, it's such a broad term, right? But single-use waste, things like this. What were you asking them to in the survey, like asking them to do, asking them to write down like the feedback you were wanting to get from them? Yes. I mean, before we even launched it, we did a survey of over a thousand students on college campuses across the country. And it was just, you know, what products do you use today? What form are those products? How much do you pay? And, you know, do you currently use plastic-free options at all? Right. And would you be interested to, to utilize a plastic-free option? And which products are you most likely to refill um, to eliminate plastic packaging? And that really just kind of gave us a base level of where they're at in their customer journey. Um, And then after they tried the products, what we really wanted to figure out is like, how much would you pay for this specific product? Other products would you be willing to refill, right? Because economically, that's really important to us. But from a waste perspective, if we're going to be successful, you know, we can't just roll out any product. It's got to be products that people are really willing to emotionally detach themselves from their Mm -hmm. existing brand or solution and actually start refilling with us. So it's really important that that data... We're following that to a T. Um, and, and that's really, from a feedback perspective, what we're looking at, in addition to, you know, what other forms of product are they currently using? Liquid, powders, sheets, yep. tablet, and, and how willing are they willing to make that switch? At what price? What's it like talking to the heads of universities or the buyers for, for universities? What are those conversations like? Have you been turned down more than accepted, right? Like it, I guess what's they're also their sort of not education, but where are they at on importance for for stuff like this? It really depends, right? So you have like twenty or thirty different departments on campus. Yeah. One of those departments have a have a different <laughs> incentive model that yeah. pushes them. So we've gotten really good at understanding, I think, what those different incentives are. You know, because frankly, if this isn't something that is in the line item of a budget for a department, right? I understand that they also have maybe ten thousand kids that they're dealing with, and 
you know, mm. no matter how great our solution is, it's at the bottom of the barrel things that they need to get done. So if we're going to think about the school as a monolith just for a second, there's just kind of maybe answer this question. You know, what's most important from an administrative perspective is also making sure the students are happy. Yep. So we take a, a bottom-up, top-down approach, but we focus most of our efforts on the students. Because mm -hmm. if we get enough students that are engaged and involved and are building a successful coalition on campus, the administration will pay attention. If we just start with the administration and we don't have a strong coalition, nine out of 10 times, it's not going to work, mostly because one, we're so small, and then two, there is no like real incentive for them to move, right? More and more of this is going to, to have to, to be available, right, for students, because it's you're on a campus, so it's also an education opportunity for all this stuff. Because I, I'm assuming when people see the machine and people using it, it's sort of this network effect where it's going to attract more people to like come over, see what it is, and then you get the story about what it is, learning more about what it is. There's an interesting way for universities and campuses to really take a lead for a bunch of this stuff. You know, I'm looking at vending machines. Like they should just have all organic and, and fair trade products in the vending machines in the campus stores, right? There's all the sweatshirts they make in there, it's all made not very well in, in parts of the world where exploitation of labor happens, right? And so there's this opportunity to educate students every single place on the campus. Are they just focused on you know, hygiene products, right? Or are they aware of all the other options as well to them that they could be you know, pushing their, their schools to, to get on campus as well? We are one of like, like 15 or 20 different initiatives that the students that we work with are working on simultaneously. Wow. You know, land back, fighting for indigenous acknowledgement of the land that the school is on and making sure that mm. there's a movement to provide either reparations or money back to these indigenous tribes to making sure the sourcing and the procurement is not just zero waste, but it's ethical, you know, right. to working on gender and identity issues, obviously Roe versus Wade, and making sure the school is guaranteeing these rights for, for students, or at least in the localities that those schools are in from a not from a local and a, and a statewide level. You know, there is so much that these students are working on on a day-to-day -day basis. It's it's so impressive. It's crazy, yeah. Like that, you know, obviously not every student on campus is doing that, right? But you have a, I think, a, a real openness on these campuses to if you're a student to get engaged on the issues that matter to you and find your community. And so there is, there is definitely no shortage also of energy, which is the most important aspect <laughs> because if you, even as we get older, it's like, you have to like find that passion and that, that thing that moves your heart to like get you going on a day-to-day -day basis. And so often the more we, you know, we, maybe we work in the, the real world, we sort of lose that a little bit, right? It, it kind of strips you of it with every little, ounce that you spend, right? You have to pay this bill because childcare is expensive, mm -hmm. is expensive, even private school tuition is expensive. Shit, food is expensive, yeah. shelter is expensive. Like, so you're almost just like scrapping once you get into the real world to get by. So yeah. you really have this really opportune moment to to have that maximum amount of passion until this uh I don't want to get I don't I'm not gonna get uh too too deep into these issues, but being able to cultivate and, and take some of that energy now is really important. And, and if you are working on other issues that go beyond, you know, hygiene products or, or plastic or zero waste or climate, like there's definitely a community of students who are probably already working on it and can probably add a lot of value to what you're working on. How did you get introduced? I, I mean, you spoke about the, the conversation you had with a little bit about your family, but and, and growing up around sort of the waste facilities. I guess when you talk about like climate and understanding like that that was not probably 
a great and healthy environment to be around. Like, were you aware of it at a younger age? Were you like, when did it come into play that like the things that we have ex historically sort of done are not the most efficient and environmentally friendly way to do these things? And this is going to be how I sort of dedicate, you know, my personal life to my career, you know, a, a lot of time and energy into that. When, when did you start to make that sort of transition in your life? Probably bring semester freshman year at college. I played soccer my whole life. And really? so, yeah, yeah. Like I was, when I, in 2007, we won the under 18 youth national championship. But I say that to say that like my whole life up until I was like Sports a sportsman, Sports. it was just get good grades and be a great athlete. That was yep. it. There was yep. no self-exploration. Yeah. And even now, like you see professional athletes who believe in like, the only thing they want to do is just like explore their intellectual curiosity. And I think so much of why I chose to go to the schools that I did was because I think growing up, I didn't have almost a space sometimes to have that yep. sort of curiosity. And it wasn't until the first semester ended up spring uh, or the first semester ended up fall and the soccer season was over that I had the time and space to find a community that aligned directionally to where I thought I wanted to go and allowed me the, the freedom to sort of explore and ask those questions and have those conversations where you know, maybe I didn't know exactly at that moment, but, you know, through my own education, through the, and I like to say, like, I build friends, like, I think of, like, a friendships as, like, co-evolution. I choose my friends based on the people who I think are going to, like, actually help me become better. And if I don't think that you can actually help me become better, then, you know, I, I, I kind of, like, shed you very quickly, you mm -hmm. know, for better or for worse. Yeah. And maybe that's a very self-interested thing, but <laughs> time is so short that you have to really be around people that are going to help you grow. It was really around then and, and probably, you know, to this day, like I still tell people I'm not going to be my, my most enlightened or best self until I'm like 55. Like mm -hmm. there's so much that is iterative of this process of life that I know a bit now, but there's so much more that I need to know. Yeah. And so this, this is all about trying to also provide other people with that platform to explore and challenge them to figure out, you know, what, what is it that you want to know and, and making sure that you have the tools and resources available to, to get to that point. I want to end on a couple of questions here. The first would be, you know, your journey as like a founder and, and starting this, this company, like, I guess, what are some uh, tips and advice you would give, uh, you know, founders wanting to get into this space, right? Get into sort of, whether it's the climate space, consumer good space, you know, there's a lot of different elements that go into, you know, the company you're building because you actually have a physical product, which is, I guess, what advice would you give to founders coming into this space or wanting to get into this space? Irrespective of what you want to get into, you need to find your why as soon as possible, because every day is going to be so challenging. Like there's going to be good days, but there's going to be more bad days than there are good days. There are days yeah. when I have so many losses that I, there are hours that I go with doing no work because I'm like so overwhelmed with emotion. Mm. And if you don't have a really strong why as to, you know, why the fuck are you working on this? Right you will evaporate so fast mm. yeah. because no strong core, no strong foundation to stand on. And the people who are the most successful, you know, either have a ton of resources uh, to, you know, to their, uh, at their availability. So they can make a thousand mistakes and it doesn't matter because they can keep going. Right. Or they have this extraordinary why to be able to solve this problem. And I think you, you know, whatever it is that you need to tell yourself or figure out, like get to that, and keep iterating to get to that as fast and as quickly as possible, such that it's still true to who you are, but keeps you passionate and motivated. And I think fully in the know of who you are and why you're doing this. 
Last question is a little bit about the future. You know, let's look at, you know, three or five years down the line. What are some of the goals and successes that, you know, you want to meet or see at Generation Conscious? You know, if we think three to five years from now, we want to have been at 300 universities with at least mm. refill stations for laundry detergent sheets. You know, we are going to start testing multi-purpose cleaner sheets to replace single-use Clorox wipes that never biodegrade mm. um, through the same uh, machine, but really actually having the machine dispense at least four different sheet products in the next three to five years at 300 universities and also being at 500 multifamily uh, buildings, which is just apartment yeah. complexes that have on average anywhere from, you know, 80 to 500 tenants, hopefully even more than that. And then slowly starting to integrate ourselves into retail, you know, by year three, I think we have enough momentum in the, in the school in the multifamily space. We have a huge huge, huge partner in the multifamily space that owns one of the, the largest residential complexes in downtown Manhattan. Um, and we're really excited to, to announce that heading into the fall. So look out for that. That's great. Um, and, you know, and then even as we think even beyond that, it's, we want to be able to create that paradigm shift where you are just an average consumer, but you're demanding a zero waste refill infrastructure everywhere you go whether it's at Dollar General, it's at Walgreens, it's at CVS, it's at ShopRite, you know, it's at Trader Joe's. And you want to know why everything you buy is in packaging, right? You know, we're in the business of selling ideas, not products. We want you to be in the psyche of every consumer's mind around the country as to why everything that they've been given since that they've been on this earth, particularly if they've been living in America, has been done so backwards. Why do we have to be buying a piece of waste every time they check out at the grocery store? Why is it not the standard to have convenient, affordable access to zero waste, non-toxic products? How come everything is direct to consumer? How come everything is retail, right? How do we really start to change that conversation? And I think not just economically from a business perspective, making sure that we expand so that we can have a sustainable business, but really changing again the cultural psyche of the American consumer. Amazing, my man. Thank you so much for taking the time. Of course. Thank you so, so much. I hope you have a blessed day and, you know, looking forward to hopefully coming back in the future. 